Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the Definitive Developers Podcast, living large in New York. I'm your host, Michael Nunez, our co-host today. Dave Anderson. Today, we'll be talking about the seven common content marketing mistakes developers should avoid and have to avoid. I have made at least seven of these. (laughs) All seven, Dave. All seven? I'm pretty sure there are more than seven mistakes you can make, and I've made all the mistakes. But like, I do not know how to avoid them. So luckily, we do have a guest that can help us with that. We have a special guest in the building. Once again, we have Stephanie Morillo. How's it going, Stephanie? Not bad. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Tell us a little bit about yourself for those who may not have heard of you before. For sure. So by day, I'm a technical program manager at Microsoft, where I manage the A-B testing program on Azure.com. And by night and by trade, I am a content strategist who specializes in developer content. Also, and I imagine you may have seen developers left and right making all sorts of mistakes My all goodness. over the place. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I have. Every day. We did have you on uh, very recently to talk about like how to get started with doing technical writing on your blog. And that was some great advice there. So you should definitely check that out. But after you get started, you're going to make the mistakes. So <laughs> let's... It happens. <laughs> That's how we learn. Yeah. But yeah, like, what do you think is a, a common mistake that people are making when they're writing content? The first one is not spending enough time with editing. So a lot of developers spend time in the research stage and in the writing stage. So they're, you know, trying to figure out what it is that they want to write about. Maybe they have to do a little bit of research, read some documentation to figure it out, do some testing, some tinkering. And then they spend all of their effort um, in writing and writing is exhaustive. And then maybe afterwards, they might give it kind of a cursory look and then say, okay, I'm just going to go publish the thing. And the problem with that is that not only have you not checked, first of all, to see if everything, like if you actually didn't miss anything. Sometimes when we write things out, we make assumptions about what the audience knows. We may miss steps and we don't know that until we publish it and somebody says, hey, I was actually confused by your article. There's also the issue of, you know, having grammar issues and typos. And if you have enough grammar issues and typos, they're actually very distracting to the reader. We can generally, like our brains can generally skip over one or two of those. But if it tends to be something really consistent, it makes it really hard to read. So you're actually spending a lot of time going word by word. It's like a little um, poke, little poke every time. (laughs) And it slows everybody down. So I would recommend that developers spend more time in editing. But in terms of editing, there's actually a few things that you can do to facilitate this. So how do you avoid not spending enough time in editing? Yeah, I feel like it's like a very like big skill too. Like it, it feels a bit it intimidating a that like skill. it's like okay, not only do I have to be like the big idea person, and I have to write it all down, but then you also have to be like a really good editor in order to make it readable. It seems in- intimidating. Well, here's the thing: everybody has like the the proficiency in each of those things is different. So you'll have, for example, like book editors that are just they have hawk eyes and they can spot everything and they can help you make your book sound polished, but they're not necessarily good writers. And then you have people that are better writers than they are editors. So it's not that you have to be as great of an editor as you are as a writer. You have to have some space between you and the piece that you wrote, like take some time so that you have to put your editor hat on. It's hard to do that when you're in the midst of writing and like, you're like, okay, I'm going to write now I just finished. And then I'm going to go straight from the top. You don't have to do that. You can take a break. It can be a few hours. It can be a few days even take a break and come back at it with a different set of eyes 
And you can use applications to help you. There are a few apps that I like. I'm a big fan of Grammarly. In fact, Grammarly is the best. I just started using Grammarly and I installed it. How do you like it? I feel attacked continuously, but (laughs) it seems fine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like I I was writing it and it was like giving me emojis about like... Oh, sad face and the happy face. Yeah, it was like all these like sad emojis. And I'm like, what? I'm just like summarizing a meeting I had with somebody. And it's like, you sound disapproving. And I'm like... (laughs) What? It can be kind of judgmental. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is the thing about those editing apps. Even when they offer edits, they're not perfect. So when you're using something like Grammarly, it edits as you write. So in real time, it'll point out errors and things like that. The problem with accepting everything is that Grammarly, for example, doesn't understand like tech jargon or tech speak. Like we might right. be using certain terms and concepts <laughs> and they might say, this is a huge typo. And you're like, yeah. no, actually, this is how the thing is spelled out. That's just what it is. <laughs> you, you know, yeah. like that's get just what it is. Right. I'm the professional here, Grammarly. Get out of here. <laughs> you know, you just, you have to just be judicious with it. What it does is that it gets people in the habit of checking their work. That's really the main thing is that it gets right. people in the habit of going, oh, let me reread the sentence and see if it actually makes sense um, or if I miss something. I do like the metrics behind it too, where it's like, this is the number of readability that your your thing yes. is. And I'm like, yes, numbers, I get this. It seems like so much more easy to, to grok. And then it's like, okay, like, yeah, this sentence has, you know, it's comma spliced to hell. And yeah, <laughs> this is really five sentences. Like, or like I, I've actually said the same thing <laughs> three times so like let me just delete it and i think that's been out pretty helpful like especially for like i've been mainly using it for emails just to keep it like punchy in the emails and not just make a block of text but i I could totally see that being super helpful for a blog too i find that it's helpful for just about any kind of writing that you do grammarly i think is optimized for helping people write more concisely tighten their writing you know eliminate like you said a lot of those redundancies and You know, like we all have like our idiosyncrasies when it comes to punctuation and it helps like point out like, you know, you have a little bit too many exclamation marks here. And like you said, like it's (laughs) comma splice to hell. And you're like, okay, yeah, I got to figure that out. But I think that using a tool like that, again, just gets you in the habit of figuring out like where you're like, like what the areas of improvement are so that as you write, you're writing with those things in mind. I do love this point you have in your article as well about like breaking up long things into smaller things yeah yeah like even if you're writing a book or something like just breaking things up into like the groups where it's like this is a a punchy point that you're making and then you get to the, the point and then you finish it and you move on to the next one like that's i think that's great advice it's how we i think we consume information on the internet We all have Mm -hmm. our attention spans are very, very, very short online. And when people tend to read online, Mm -hmm. they look like their eyes are actually scanning the page. They're not reading word for word. They're actually looking for page breaks. They're looking for headers. They're looking for bullets, anything that kind of breaks up the text to help them like, you know, like very quickly scan and move on to the next thing. So anything you can do as a writer to help do that, like, and you mentioned, Dave, like Mm -hmm. how you don't like sending emails that are like a block of text, anything that you can do to kind of like break things down into like the smallest component helps people read and capture the information better. Yeah. And that's like one of those things that's also makes it more accessible as well. Like when you're kind of doing this kind of editing and like 
breaking it up and like adding the headings and things like that like you're making it more accessible to like not only different levels of people but differently abled people it's it's one of those like curb effects kind of things yep agreed so i have a blog post i have grammarly now and you know i'm typing great my typing is so good now mm-hmm. that i have grammarly in this example the next bullet talks <laughs> about you know with a lot of the tech writing that happens, people are going to upload like videos or examples of things. And I see that here is that not adding detailed description yeah. to multimedia content. My question is like, I thought that by me adding the video is adding description to the thing. What do you mean by the, the detailed description to the content itself? That's a great question. With this particular example, I wasn't even thinking about blogging. I was thinking about the podcasts and the videos that we see like proliferating everywhere in tech. So oftentimes I will see people upload a video about something, they're they're doing something. And in the description section, they have maybe like one line Mm -hmm. of what the video is. There's no show notes. Like they have no, they don't actually tease out anything about the cadence, Mm -hmm. about the topics, about what's being covered. And I think going back to what Dave was talking about with accessibility, that's a huge issue in terms of making your content Mm -hmm. accessible. If I land on your video on YouTube and the title tells me something and I'm like, okay, I might want to click on it. I usually read the description to try to see what else is covered. So if you don't put information in the description, you actually lose out on a section of your audience because, you know, having to listen to a podcast or watch a video is a time commitment. So -hmm. you have to draw people in. You have to give them info. You have to tell them, you know, like link out to any docs or articles or websites that are being referenced, you know, on the video or in the podcast. And, you know, you want to pick out certain things that, you know, will entice people to watch it, but not just that, give them enough information to help them decide whether or not it's relevant to them. Right. So it's like the idea of you having to offer the listener or the viewer an incentive to want to click on that link because I have to give three minutes of my time and three minutes on the internet is a long time. It is. And, or also like if you're kind of like in the middle of work or something and you want to reference something quickly and then there's like a video in the middle of an article and I don't know, like, I mean, this used to happen, like I'd be in the office and I wouldn't want to like play it. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, okay, I guess I, I just won't know what this is. I'll just move on. Yeah. You probably got all the tabs open on your Chrome with all the things you want to see <laughs> lined up, ready to go. <laughs> yeah. But I still like most of the time like don't want to like hear something a lot of the time. I'm, like if I'm in the reading mode, I'm in the reading mode. I want to get through it. So I do appreciate that when people people do that. And I feel like we've gotten comments too, like on like Twitter posts that we've done for like people who have commented on the outline or like the show notes or things like that. They're like, oh yeah, I love I love this idea. Or like this is a good point. I didn't listen to the podcast though. I just read the yeah, show. Yeah, they notes. just read the show notes and they're like, oh, that's actually really dope. Like, you know, you you give them something to remember your content by. So if they have to bookmark it and come back to it later, that's fine. But they understand they get the TLDR of what's being discussed. Dave, I think the next point is talking about us specifically. I feel personally attacked right now. Attack number three. <laughs> Two years ago. I was thinking about you, Dave, when I wrote this. Two years oh, ago. <laughs> it's like, there's this guy. <laughs> I don't know he him yet. But... Yeah, I haven't met him yet, but this is for him and his lazy self. Yeah. So the third bullet is not promoting 
content enough on social media. And I apologize in advance. God's working on all of us. <laughs> Stephanie, tell no, us about why Mike, is this a problem. Mike is carrying me. He's carrying <laughs> me on social media. <laughs> why is this a problem? And why do people want, like, what's the incentive to want us promote more on social media? Well, the problem is that a lot of people get really excited. They're like, okay, I published this one blog post and it's really, really good. And I'm going to tweet about it. And they tweet about it once and that's it. They might tweet about it twice. Maybe maybe they'll retweet it later and that's it. And mm -hmm. the truth is that the way social media works, and we all know how social media works, they're algorithmic in nature and they constantly refresh. So if you, let's say, have 500 followers, all 500 of your followers are not going to be on Twitter at the same exact time. Mm -hmm. So at the moment you publish that piece of content, only a percentage of your followers are going to be there and are going to see it. Right. And it might not be surfaced for the people who are in different time zones ever again. Oh, not yeah. just that. It's just like might... a fire hose, right? Like <laughs> That's the, it. the fire hose, the tsunami comes and it just carries it's like a little your... blip. It's a little blip. <laughs> and then like the blip is gone. And then the people who follow you, but maybe are on different work schedules, different time zones, then they don't see that. And then you haven't resurfaced it. So that's one issue. The second issue is that some people might see it, but you still kind of, you have to realize that there's always takeaways different. Like think of like two or three points that you made in that podcast or in that video or in that blog post that are interesting that your audience might want to know about. You can use each subsequent tweet, LinkedIn post, whatever mm. to kind of focus on that one particular point. Like maybe they're not interested about point A, but they're going to be interested in point B. So when you're promoting your content, you're ensuring that more of your audience gets to see it. You're ensuring that people engage with it and that, you know, that it increases the visibility so that, you know, you can kind of, you know, that's how a lot of um, corporate social media accounts tend to work. Like they will schedule social media posts for different time zones and experiment. Like here's another thing with, with not promoting content enough on social media. Mm -hmm. If you're scheduling a tweet for 11 p.m. on a Saturday it's not going to get, nobody's going to look at it. Nobody's reading. Got, nobody's not in front of that computer. Like, it for times that people are most likely to see it and engage like with it. Like at the bar, their friends. Like, I mean, oh yeah, like let me read this tech blog post. Oh no, like let me listen to this podcast here in the bar. No, yeah, nobody's right, going to do yeah. that. Please. I'm having a moment with the rabbit hole right now. Just drinking a beer. Mm-hmm. So, like, is there a right platform that I should promote on? Is Twitter correct or is it LinkedIn? I would say Twitter is correct for developers, but LinkedIn surprisingly tends to be a very underutilized, even though it makes sense to publish certain things on there because developers are on LinkedIn looking for jobs or they might be, you know, like mm -hmm. that's, that's what it is. So the idea is that if you have, you have to know where your audience is at. Like if you looked at your analytics and you see where they're coming from, then you want to make sure that you're publishing something so that you're producing for that platform. If most of your listeners come in through Twitter, you want to make sure that you're publishing on Twitter, but you want to make sure that you're promoting it more than once. And listen, this is another thing that blows people's minds. One thing that I do that consistently gets me views on my blog posts is that I will resurface tweets that I tweeted like six months ago promoting an old blog post. And I will retweet that like a few months later. And without a doubt, I will get more likes, more retweets, and people will find that interesting. So if you have all of this content you're kind of sitting on, you can promote your older content. It doesn't always have to be the new stuff. But do you like add new commentary on that? Or are you just without commenting? Like Sometimes. 
it depends. Like if it's a tweet that like got a lot of engagement, like an old tweet, I will retweet that old tweet. Sometimes what I like to do though, is I like to schedule blog posts of the older content and I might like adjust the copy a bit or like, you know, bring up like specific points and then that'll be like a brand new post. So, you know, I like experimenting. I like trying to see what, what works best. Mm. You said the word analytics and there's another, there's a bullet here that we, that talks about analytics and the question what works best. (laughs) Right. I think, you know, a mistake that people make is that they're not checking their analytics enough to be able to respond to the things that they're putting out to their content. Me personally, I feel like analytics is something I avoid altogether. I'm like, no, I don't want to see how many people read it. Oh my God. No, I just want to put it out there. That's it. And that's definitely a problem. Could you dive into that a little bit as to why, like, what are some things that we could do with the analytics that we get from our content and how to make it better? Yeah. I mean, analytics, I think tells us a lot of information about how people are finding our content, what pieces of content performed really well, meaning what pieces of content tended to get like a lot of views or a lot of comments. What it tells me is that it tells me the level of engagement that my audience has with my content, you know, using like, you know, platform specific metrics. So like on social media, like the focus will be on like impressions, on likes, retweets, on on comments. You know, if it's a blog, you might be looking at page views, time Mm -hmm. on page, bounce rate, that kind of thing. And even things like your referral traffic. I like to see that because I like to know where my audience is coming from. I like to know, okay, if I wrote this blog post, but, you know, it didn't really get a lot of love on Twitter, but I'm still seeing that, you know, a lot of people visited it this month. How did they find out? Next thing I find out is that, you know, a lot of people actually came through Google. That means that my SEO is going SEO. Yeah. That means that my SEO <laughs> is on point yeah. and that people are finding the content and that they're relevant. You might notice over time, you might notice trends. Maybe people are gravitating towards certain types of topics, which is great because then it tells you, okay, if people really like, I don't know, my content about React Native or whatever, then maybe I should focus on writing more of those kinds of posts because those are the types of things that seem to perform really well. So it gives you kind of a bit of a direction, especially if you're not really sure what you should be working on next. It also points, you know, places for improvement. You know, if if something isn't performing the way you wanted it to, there might be, you know, room for investigating to see why. Yeah, this one does. I think what what Mike was saying, like, feels kind of true where it's like, there's kind of like this like metric of like, Oh, like likes and impressions and whatever equals happiness. <laughs> but like, I think that we are talking about it is a bit more healthy where it's like, okay, like this is more scientific. Like let's, let's see what's working. Let's, let's be curious and just like check it out and not be judgmental of your post that only got one like or whatever. Frankly, it's like an imperfect measurement. It just measures one specific thing. And you can decide how you want to use that information. You can decide to disregard it completely. You can decide that you might want to optimize for it. All it does is that it just gives you something to kind of aim towards if you're not really sure what it is that you should be doing differently. It helps you answer some of those preliminary questions like, okay, what should I do next? What should I improve upon? Analytics is just like one of the first places that you go to to kind of figure that out. It's not the only way. But it's one of the ways to, to help you, one of the tools you can use to help you with that. I see. So now that we're using the analytics that we're getting in a scientific matter, I think the next bullet points to the idea of, you know, not repurposing existing content for other mediums. And I think that's like yes. what it feels meta. 
Yeah, and no, it really does because, like, you know, you get the. I can only imagine if I put a blog post out and I get a high response on Twitter, maybe I could repurpose it somehow for LinkedIn, as you mentioned before. Right. And like, or if you write a, a post about seven common marketing mistakes and someone reads it and they're like, "Wow, I really want to talk with you about this," you could make a podcast about. Yeah, it. Can make a podcast. <laughs> yes, you can. Bam, yes. baby, we did it. We did that one. We are repurposing existing <laughs> content. Yes. Wow. Reduce and reuse. (laughs) It's all about not having to reinvent the wheels. Funny that you mentioned that, Mike, because last year I was on a podcast where I spoke through the podcast and they actually took an excerpt of it and turned it into a blog post. And I still refer to that blog post, you know, and then people will listen to the podcast through that. It's another vehicle for promoting your content, but it also helps get your content to new audiences. So maybe everybody is not really into podcasts. Right. But if y'all had a blog that accompanied the podcast and then... You know, you worked with the editors to kind of like, you know, you have transcribers, you picked out certain things and you turned that into a blog post. It's another way of promoting the podcast, but you're doing it in a way that maybe another audience would appreciate receiving that same kind of content. So it's really about just like, okay, I have this stuff, you know, I have this blog post. I could turn it into a video of this, of that, and the third. And it makes the whole process of like, oh, I have to create something new every time less overwhelming. You don't have to create everything from scratch. Right. I mean, like, look at Marvel. Mm-hmm. They <laughs> got comic books. Now they got movies. Twenty-two movies. Twenty-two. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Sure. Like, yeah. From I'm ready comic for... books to action figures. Now they got twenty-two, twenty-three movies. God, they got mad movies. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm ready for the Stephanie Morio extended universe <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> of content creation. Let's of go. Content creation. <laughs> I mean, that would actually be kind of dope. That would involve a whole team. But you know, Hollywood <laughs> is taking it to the other extreme. Yeah. We still need, you know new stories and stuff like you yeah. don't want to take you don't want to just repurpose but we don't want Captain with, America <laughs> like every five years no we don't we don't need all yeah. that yeah radio free <laughs> so if you repurpose your content from moving it from one medium to another helps as you mentioned relieve yourself of the pressure of having to think about creating new content because you can just yes. repurpose the old one and I think your bullet the next one we talk about or rather that the blog post refers to is publishing too much content at once. Is that even possible? I can ever, like, have I ever thought that I could publish too much content? I know people who have done this. I remember working with a developer advocate who at one point published something like five YouTube videos. I'm talking about like five, like hour long YouTube videos, like within a span of a few days. And they would do this, like there was no rhyme or reason Mm. to how often they published. Like they were constantly publishing things. So believe it or not, It does happen. The point that I'm trying to stress here is to space out your content. So like maybe, you know, Dave, you sit down and you're like, okay, after this podcast episode, I'm really inspired. I'm going to write five blog posts. Don't publish all of them like (laughs) right after the other. Dave, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that. Space them out. Space them out. It could be, you know, once a week. It could be every two weeks. Mm -hmm. But the reason you do that is first... The way y'all do with the podcast, you want to establish a cadence that works, that's sustainable, mm-hmm. so you don't lose steam over time. Because right. you might find that, you know, you had energy to write five blog posts at once, but, you know, a few months down the line, you're not going to have as much, the output's not going to be the same. So it kind of just, you know, saves you from having to, like, feel like, oh, my gosh, you know, I have to constantly do what I did, you know, in the past. It's about yeah. making it fit. I have thought about this with my blog, actually, and, like... Going back to like replatforming my blog that we talked I about in the last episode. <laughs> so like I, I have Jekyll for my blog and I don't think that there's a good way for me to schedule the posts. And I think I've just That's made a hard. huge mistake. I think I made a huge mistake. 
I like looked up how to do it and they're like, okay, like let's use serverless to do this. And I'm like, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> you say use a serverless? Yeah. Fun fact, I was the editor-in-chief of the GitHub company blog a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was about 2,000 blog posts when I was there. And the whole blog was on Jekyll. And it would take 20 minutes for a blog post to go live sometimes. sometimes five to 20 minutes because the whole thing would have to rebuild. <laughs> mm-hmm. But before I joined... Some of my colleagues would have to stay up until like midnight or whatever to publish blog posts that were supposed to go live like in Europe the next day because we couldn't schedule things. And I was like, absolutely no. not. This is not going to work. Oh, they, they migrated the whole thing to WordPress. I was like, we're not doing this anymore. And we oh, did not do no, that No, that's a dark secret. So- <laughs> oh, my gosh. Why am I, I still in Jekyll? I was traumatized. Yeah, I got yeah. to re- re-platform my blog. Re-platform okay. your blog. The there founder of Jekyll who worked at GitHub was like, you did the right thing. Yeah, there you so go. I'm sure he will agree with you. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's important because like there's like ebbs and flows. And then like I don't want to be a publisher I don't know, a publishing monkey and a writer and an editor and like all these other things. Like I want a computer to do my job. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We got the bullet number seven. You're writing your content using your analytics. You're not posting too much. You're scheduling, Dave. Mm -hmm. You do make it sure that it's going out at a decent cadence. This is my final deadly sin though. (laughs) Not (laughs) studying developer marketing. Stephanie, can you tell us more about that? So frankly, I think the developers are doing the best at developer marketing. They're doing better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. So if they're developers that you admire that create content, like think about the the people who create the newsletters that you really like, the blogs that you really like, the screencasts, everything, study them, Mm -hmm. study them, be a student of how they do things and figure out what it is that you like about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Like try to articulate that for yourself and try to see if you can replicate it. Like, a lot of these tactics, people copy them. Yeah. If you're going to copy them, though, at least try to understand exactly what you're copying and why you think it works. Frankly, the more technical content you read, the better of a writer you're going to get. Like if you see, you know, the more technical content you listen to or you see, you watch, like you're going to get better in that medium. So really, it's important. You don't have to do everything in a vacuum. See how other people do it and try to replicate what works. And I guess that goes back to like what we were talking about a little before, maybe maybe off air or in the previous episode of like being on social media and being social Mm -hmm. and like maybe (laughs) engaging with people and having a conversation. Mm -hmm. I guess I could do it. I could study. I could be a coach. I I believe in you, You bro. You got this. Yo, (laughs) we got you. Don't worry about it. (laughs) He's going to be doing the developer content episodes moving forward. Yes. Yo, Dave, I believe in you. (laughs) I'm uh, going to hide in my closet. Goodbye. <laughs> too much pressure. Too much too pressure. Much pressure. Yeah. You know, I imagine if you follow every one of those steps, you know, and they're common enough that we all have been tripped up by them, you will create better content. Yes, you will. It's been Stephanie Morillo approved that you will create better content. <laughs> Stephanie, how can people contact you or reach out to you if they have any questions about the blog or about uh, the content that you create? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Radio Murillo. You can find me on the internet at stephaniemurillo.co. And if you're interested in my book, The Developer's Guide to Content Creation, you can find that at developersguidetocontent.com. Awesome. So I'm ready to write content, you know, and (laughs) not fall through those mistakes. I'm going to check the analytics. I have to. This was a lot of fun. I feel like I learned something. I'm going to go make some more mistakes so that you can come up with a sequel blog <laughs> so post. So I can come back next time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then write them about you specifically so you feel personally yeah, exactly. tagged for yeah. them. <laughs> 
Follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going. Like what you hear? Give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and my amazing co-host, Dave Anderson, and me, your host, Michael Nunez, thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole.